Welcome back, you guys. Today, we're going to be talking about Graves' disease with Dr. Eric. Dr. Eric is a chiropractor, clinical nutritionist, and a certified functional medicine practitioner who helps people recover from thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions. He is the author of the book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroid and Graves' Disease and Hashimoto's Triggers. Dr. Eric was personally diagnosed in 2008 with Graves' disease, and after taking a natural treatment approach, he has been in remission since 2009. After seeing how well natural treatment methods helped him with his condition, he began using these natural thyroid treatment protocols to help others with different types of thyroid and autoimmune thyroid conditions, including hyperthyroid and Graves' disease, as well as hypothyroidism and Hashimoto's thyroiditis. You guys, this was an incredible interview. I absolutely loved um, Dr. Eric's take when it comes to Graves' disease and how he approaches Hashimoto's and autoimmune conditions. Welcome back to the Thriving Thyroid Podcast, where we choose to become empowered patients and take our health into our own hands. Hi, I'm Shannon Hansen, a Christian entrepreneur, a mom of three, and after dealing with my own health mysteries, I made it my mission to learn everything I could about the thyroid. I soon became certified as a holistic wellness practitioner, a functional nutrition practitioner, and a functional diagnostic practitioner, and so much more. After that, I founded the revolutionary thyroid program, The Hansen Method. As a health professional and a mom, I fully understand the importance of having a fun, simple, and sustainable plan for achieving a responsive thyroid. So I share actionable and practical strategies for developing a responsive thyroid so that the ambitious moms and women can gain freedom from fatigue and lose the thyroid weight once and for all. Each week, I will be here for you. Along with my guest experts, we will be sharing simple and tangible tips that work for not only your thyroid, your hormones, your family, and your mindset so that you can get back to living the life that you envision for yourself. Welcome to the Thriving Thyroid Podcast. All right, welcome back to the Thriving Thyroid Podcast, you guys. Um, I did not ask you how you like to be introduced. So how do you like to be introduced? Um. I guess uh, you could just call either Dr. Eric or Dr. Eric Osansky, either one. Okay. Either one's fine. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Eric Osansky. Did I say that right? Um, uh, um, close enough. Osan- Osansky, but that's good Osansky. enough. Osansky. <laughs> okay. There we go. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I had a funny last, my maiden last name is Bayes, but it's spelled B-A-I-Z-E. So it's kind of... Uh, anyways, one of those things. Um, all right. Well, welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about hyperthyroidism today. Um, so shifting gears a little bit from hypothyroidism and you guys might hear my little guest, um, Maisie's going to be joining us today. <laughs> so we will see how this goes. Welcome Dr. Eric. Thanks Shannon. Excited to be here. With you and Maisie. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your story and um, how you got started with hyperthyroidism and grapes. Sure. So 
in 2008, I started experiencing weight loss. And I mean, I guess, I guess going back to that, even before that, I was actually dieting and detoxifying, which is why I thought I was losing weight. And I'm sure that was part of it. But then I realized I was losing a good amount of weight. And one day I was walking in a Sam's club and they have those automated blood pressure machines. And I took my blood pressure, which was fine, but my heart rate was elevated. And that's when I knew something was up. And it was anywhere when, when I took it that day, it was about 90, which wasn't too bad, but I took it multiple times throughout the next few days. And it was anywhere from low nineties to like one, one, 105, 110. And so I decided to see a, a, a general practitioner and diagnosed me with hyperthyroidism. And it's funny how that works. Of course, after that, then I was paying more attention to the symptoms. I noticed that the palpitations at night and, uh, you know, so in addition to the resting heart rate being elevated and, you know, I already knew about the weight loss, but I didn't attribute that to hyperthyroidism at the time, had voracious appetite, which also I thought was due to restricting the diet. And uh, yeah, just uh, tremors, uh, a number of the classic symptoms associated with hyperthyroidism. And then uh, I eventually saw an endocrinologist who did some additional testing, mainly the thyroid antibodies, the thyroid stimulating immunoglobulins, and that pretty much confirmed the Graves disease diagnosis. And I, I, we could get more into the treatments, but I, I knew I was going to take a natural approach just because of my background. And long story short, that was in 2008 into 2009. And I've been in remission since 2009. And thankfully, I've been able to avoid, you know, radioactive iodine thyroid surgery, which are, which are two treatment methods commonly recommended to those with hyperthyroidism. That's amazing. So what is your background? Because obviously, you're a doctor. So prior to you experiencing grave disease, where did you kind of niche down or what were you doing? Yeah, so, so I'm a chiropractor. That's that's my um, main credential. And I practiced traditional chiropractic for about seven and a half years. And then after my grave disease diagnosis, I decided to get my master's in nutrition and also got certified through the Institute of Functional Medicine, along with a few other nutritional certifications. But, uh, but yeah, before the Graves disease diagnosis, I was just practicing chiropractic. Amazing. I love chiropractic. It has been, I don't know, a godsend for a long time for me. So a little background, I was in a rollover car accident and was ejected from the car when I was 12. And chiropractic was one of those things that just helped my body and helped keep me off of a lot of pain medication. And I'm sure a lot of other medication um, just from the trauma of all of that to my body. So awesome. yeah. So what I feel like graves and maybe it's just a circle that I run in, um, is not talked about a lot. So how is that different than Hashimoto's? Yeah. And, and you're right. Hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's it's, it's much more common. So you don't hear as much about hyperthyroidism, graves disease, but as far as how it differs from, you know, hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism, Graves, Hashimoto's, how they differ from each other, uh, a big thing is the symptoms that are the symptoms. And again, I mentioned some of the common symptoms with, with hyperthyroidism and there, there's others like hair loss, which could also happen with hypothyroidism, but um, insomnia pretty common with uh, 
with hyperthyroidism, anxiety. I mentioned increased resting heart rate, heart palpitations, sometimes loose stools, and uh, you know tremors. I said already, and you know with hypothyroidism, you get that decreased metabolism. So usually you get the fatigue, you'll get the weight gain, you'll get the brain fog, uh, you get the coldness. So those are also those are more, again more closely associated with hypothyroidism. Sometimes there's overlap. People with hyperthyroidism could also experience fatigue and, you know, so, you know, people with hypothyroidism definitely could experience anxiety and, and other symptoms. And, you know, so uh, sometimes it could be challenging to tell one apart from the other because people with like Hashimoto's could have like Hashitoxicosis where they're having symptoms of hyperthyroidism. But as far as the symptoms, those are, are how they, uh, how they differ, even though, again, there are exceptions. Yeah. And, so when it comes to autoimmunity, so obviously for the listeners, we know this, but Hashimoto's and Graves disease are, um, autoimmune conditions. What can trigger someone to have those, either one of those? Yeah. So I usually talk about four different categories of infections. I mean, I'm sorry, four different categories of triggers. Infections are actually one of the categories, but, uh, probably the most talked about is food, uh, food triggers like gluten. A lot of people, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with gluten being a potential trigger when it comes to both Hashimoto's and Graves disease and, you know, dairy also. And it doesn't mean everybody who, you know, has dairy is going to be a trigger, but those are some of the more common ones, corn, even salt, salt. You know, we hear about salts associated with high blood pressure, which could be the case, but also too much salt can increase what's called TH17 cells, which are associated with autoimmunity. And then second category of trigger, stress, which is big. And I would say even more so with hyperthyroidism, with Graves' disease. I mean, definitely with all autoimmune conditions, stress is a factor. It really probably all health conditions um, overall. But actually, in the literature, there is a there, there is research showing the the relationship between stress and Graves' disease, and so definitely want to take care of your adrenals, uh, which is why I look at adrenals uh, pretty much every one of my patients. Um, number three, I mentioned infections, and it could be gut infections such as H. pylori. Uh, there's actually a case, actually I think a couple of case studies with Hashimoto's and showing a. a few case studies involving blastocystis hominis, which is a parasite potentially being a trigger, and then viruses, um, not only the virus that we have been dealing with for the last few years, but um, Epstein-Barr, again, and, and this is in the research, and uh, you know, Lyme disease, so stealth infections such as Lyme disease, Bartonella in some cases could act as a trigger. And then the, the fourth one, chemicals. Uh, we live in a toxic world and no matter how hard we try, no matter where we move, I mean, without question, some places are better than others, but there's toxins everywhere. We're going to be exposed to heavy metals. We're going to be exposed to xenoestrogens and, you know, like bisphenol A, BPA. But, you know, of course, we could do things to minimize our exposure to these toxins. And uh, essentially, those are the four, those are the four categories of triggers. Um, I, one thing to add to is a leaky gut and increase in intestinal permeability also seems to be a factor. I wouldn't necessarily call that a trigger, but just um, there's something called triad of autoimmunity where you need to have the, the one or more environmental triggers, that leaky gut, and then the genetic predisposition. 
And so, um, so yeah, that in a nutshell is what some of the triggers or at least the categories of triggers uh, when it comes to both Graves and Hashimoto's. Yeah, that I talk about all four of those um, as well. I'm curious though, what do you think, do you think that every person with hyperthyroidism or Graves, let's just kind of focus in on Graves, has all four of these or do they, can they have one or two? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, de definitely they could have multiple. I think it's very common to for people that have multiple triggers as far as the different categories. I, I wouldn't say that everybody has all four of the, I mean, honestly, there are people where I'm sure you've seen it. There are people that go gluten-free and then, you know, their numbers and their symptoms improve dramatically. And then there might be someone who goes on a strict elimination diet and they don't feel better. I mean, again, there are people that do that and feel better, but it's just telling us that food, it's important with everybody. You don't want to eat inflammatory foods, but it's not necessary, not necessarily a trigger, or at least not the main trigger. It's a piece. And many people, it's a piece, actually with everybody, we could say it's a, an important piece of the puzzle. Sometimes it, gluten or dairy or another food could be the main trigger. But yeah, I, I would say most people stress is a, is a factor. So we could put that as a factor or potential trigger with just about everybody. But I can't say most people have, you know, let, let's put this so with Epstein-Barr, most people have Epstein-Barr, the virus, but I can't say it's a trigger just because someone has it. So I guess to answer the question again, to summarize, it's very common for someone to have multiple triggers. It is possible to just have like one or two triggers and that's, you know, but, but it's not definitely more common to have a few different factors. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with that. Typically the way that I tell people is there's usually five different factors and the five different factors can happen over a long period of time. Um, some of, a lot of it has to do with stress. So when you say stress, what kind of stress are you talking about and how do you define stress? Yeah, that could be different types of stressors. So obviously mental, mental, emotional stressors. So if someone has, you know, a very stressful job, if someone, you know, there's, uh, you know, problems with the relationship or their caretaker, uh, you know, that could be the cause of the stress. Then it could be physical stresses, stressors. You mentioned that you got into a, you know, a car accident and, and you had to see a chiropractor. So it's physical stressors on the body, you know, even infections, we talk about infections and, you know, that's a stressor too. So if someone does have a virus or, you know, a, a you know, Lyme disease or another type of inf infection, but I think what's important to mention, and again, I'm sure you would agree with this. It's not so much the stress, but the perception of the stress and how we handle the stress, because we can't completely eliminate the stress from our life. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to have an acute stress situation, which our bodies were designed to heal with, uh, to deal with. But when it comes to, you know, the chronic stress situations, which most of us deal with these days, you know, with the, maybe we could reduce the stressors a little bit, depending on the person. Um, but really, we all need to do things. In my opinion, everybody needs to block out time really every day to focus on stress handling. Okay. So that leads to my next question. I, and I bring this up because I feel like for me, when somebody was like, manage your stress, I was like, listen, I have five kids, uh, five kids. I have three kids, five and under. Um, I'm not sleeping well at night. I'm stressed and 
at my wits end with, you know, just all of the different things in my life. And so people are like, manage your stress, learn how to relax. And I'm like, relax. I don't even know what that is anymore. And so are there some tips or recommendations that you have for someone who is where I was very chronically stressed out and overworked and everything? Are there ways to manage stress in a simple and easy way to get started? Yeah, I would say even deep breathing, you know, you got, you need to pick something obviously that you're going to do on a regular basis. And so pick something, it doesn't have to be deep breathing. If you want to do yoga, uh, you know, that that's fine too, or other types of mind body medicine. I use something, I don't know if you're familiar with heart math, but a type of biofeedback, uh, biofeedback. And, uh, but again, you want it as simple as possible. So I would say even deep breathing the, the thing is, though, you want to do it consistently. So the problem is when people try to block out time for stress management, you know, maybe they'll go to a yoga studio or do yoga on their own, but they'll only do it a few days a week, which, you know, is better than nothing. But what I mentioned, what I tell my patients to make it easier, start with five minutes per day, because five, just about everybody can incorporate five minutes per day. And then once you get in the routine of doing it every single day for, let's say, a few weeks or you know, a month or two, then you could start increasing the duration. But if, you know, if I, I would tell someone to do 15, 20 minutes per day, again, chances are they probably wouldn't do it. Most people wouldn't do it. And then those who do, if there's something that interrupts that, it's pretty much done. So like five minutes, get in that routine. And then once you're in that routine, gradually increase to, to 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And even if you're doing... 10, 15 minutes that, I mean, honestly, even five minutes per day is great, but over time you do want to increase that. And if you could get it to like even 15 minutes per day, that's going to have a great impact on, you know, how you manage stress. Yeah. I love that. So for me, what I started to do was something very similar, um, breathing. Cause I noticed my breath was very like shallow. Like I felt like I could never catch my breath kind of deal. Um, was so breathing, I would just try to breathe throughout the day. Um, and then the other thing was for me, I started to prioritize my sleep because what I found for me was I was staying up late. Cause I was like, this is my only alone time. And I would watch TV or mainly watch TV. Sometimes I would fold laundry with it. And I was like, this is contributing to the stress on my body because I'm one, I was still waking up and nursing in the middle of the night. And so I was not getting good, solid sleep, even when I did go to bed. Um, so anyways, yeah, no, that's important. Yeah. You definitely want to get your sleep and, and also I should mention, there's also apps out there. There's the something called the calm app. Um, there's Headspace, you know, if you visit headspace.com on your computer, or again, do, do a search on your phone for heads, there's a Headspace app. So, so you could also, if someone is like, well, you know, I'm just not motivated to do breathing on, on my own, you know, you could sign up for Headspace, the Headspace app, and, you know, you get some, someone guiding you through it. So that's also an option, but yeah, I'm glad you brought up the sleep because you don't want to, you know, neglect your sleep. You want to get, you know, most people at least seven and a half, eight hours sleep. And, you know, then you got to take into consideration. It might take you some time to fall asleep. So take So, so yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. So let's transition a little bit into diets or I don't, I hate the word diet only because I think for women, it has a, a bad 
association. So nutrition plans, um, for people with graves, what, what kind of things should they be eating? What should they stay away from? Sure. So yeah, there's definitely no diet that fits everyone perfectly. And, uh, and you're right, you know, diet in a way does have like a negative connotation. So I, I would say the most important thing is eating whole healthy foods, avoiding inflammatory foods, the unhealthy oils, refined foods and sugars. So just, you know, I mean, eat plenty of vegetables and, you know, so yeah. Um, I mean, again, we said, you know, not to, not to say, talk about diets too much, but, but I will say that I like for most of my patients with graves and, and same with Hashimoto's, you know, I do recommend like either like paleo or autoimmune paleo as a starting point. Now I'll make modifications, but again, what all these, you know, whether it's ketogenic, whether it's, you know, now there, there's carnivore diet, you know, again, all these, I mean, obviously carnivore diet's a little bit different because there's like no, no vegetables or minimal vegetables on that. But, um, but again, all of them would recommend eating whole healthy foods, plenty of vegetables, some fruit. You know, if you eat meat, you want to eat like grass fed beef, ideally like organic pasture raised chicken, same thing with eggs. You know, eggs are not on like autoimmune paleo, but they're allowed on paleo. And again, if you eat eggs, organic, if you can pasture raised and, but yeah, avoid avoiding the foods, you know, any, I mean, I, would, I don't want to say anything that's in a bag or box, but you want to try to eat as many foods that are outside of a bag or box. And just really, again, those, the, the oils are really bad. So I would just really try to do everything they can to avoid, you know, the, you know, vegetable oils, corn oil, canola oil, uh, you know, even the nut oils you want to be careful about and, you know, stick more with like coconut oil, avocado oil, olive oil. And, um, and yeah, so, so if, if, at, and then of course we mentioned like gluten, gluten, dairy, so trying to, but if you're eating whole foods, whole healthy foods, then you're really going to be avoiding the gluten dairy. It's just when you're getting to the packaged foods, you know, the breads, the cookies, the crackers. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so that's as far as diet. And if you want, we could expand on that, but, but that essentially is what I, yeah, absolutely. I would love to have you expand on that specifically that word that I couldn't say <laughs> around people getting started. Cause one of the things that I hear a lot, um, is I grew up eating boxed foods. I grew up eating a lot of processed foods. And so these women are struggling with just cooking skills. And for me, that's very interesting because I grew up very on the polar opposite side. I grew up, um, if we had any, I did not have sugar until I was two and it happened at my grandma's house and my parents were not happy about that. Um, and then any kind of sugar that we had in our home was it had to be made. So like my mom would make cookies, she would make sweets. And that was, you know, maybe once a month, twice a month. Um, but everything was cooked from scratch. So do you have any tips on getting started with that? Yeah, actually, I grew up eating plenty of sugar, you know, no, no, um, pretty much no vegetables you know, as a child or teenager. So I can relate what, what a lot of your, you know, listeners are, are going through. It's, it's not easy to make the transition to a healthy diet. And, you know, especially in, again, in my situation, not eating any vegetables. And now, you know, I'll eat like seven, eight, nine servings per day. And it, it took time though. I didn't jump into that. And that's, 
everybody's different. So there's some people that are able to jump cold turkey, just go from an unhealthy diet to a healthy diet. But you know, if someone's used to eating refined foods and sugars and unhealthy oils, going out to fast food restaurants uh, on a regular basis, it probably will be difficult to make that transition where you're avoiding all those foods and just uh, you know eating completely healthy organic foods. So what I would say is, you know, take small steps. So maybe add a vegetable, a different vegetable per week. And you want to try to, when it comes to the vegetables, you want as much variety as possible because that's great for the microbiome, that diversity. So you don't want to just be eating the same salad every single day. So that's why I say add one or two different vegetables per week. And, you know, if you're not buying organic, also I would say, especially with the vegetables, the produce, the vegetables, the fruit, the you know, meat, um, poultry, you know, that you definitely want to buy organic and just try to slowly make the transition. If you're eating fast food, let's say three days a week, well, it's great if you could completely stop it now, definitely do that. But maybe you have to like eat it, cut, cut back by one or two, two days, you know, just where you're only doing it once, twice a week, as far as eating out. And, uh, you know, just, again, slow. And that's, that's, I mean, when I dealt with graves, I can't say it was slow. Cause again, I, I went, when I went to chiropractic school, I was making the transition then. Um, but you know, for a lot of my patients, it's, it does take some time, takes a, you know, a few weeks, sometimes months to really get to the point where they're at the elimination diet stage, where they're eliminating like those, all the refined oils that we mentioned and the sugars and really just focusing on a whole healthy foods. So, so yeah, just, I would say baby steps and definitely if, if I could do it, you could do it. Cause I had like Hawaiian punch and, you know, all these cookies and all this, so, you know, soda pretty much every single day. Um, everything that I wasn't supposed to eat, I was eating, you know, fast food, you know, a few days a week. And so, so yeah, definitely you could do it. You just might have to take it slow. All right. Sorry, guys. She is super fussy. She's never done this before. Um, anyways, can you discuss other autoimmune types um, of like hypo, non autoimmune types? There we go. Of hyperthyroidism. Yes, uh, definitely could do that. So, so again, Graves is autoimmune, but there is also what's called toxic multinodular goiter. So, as the name implies. Uh, multi-nodule goiter, that means you have multiple thyroid nodules in the presence of a goiter, which is an enlargement of the thyroid gland. And then the tox toxic part, that means that you have hyperthyroidism associated with the multi-nodule goiter. So a lot of people have multi-nodule goiter, but it's not toxic. Toxic. So again, toxic multi-nodule goiter, that's another, actually that's pretty common as well, as far as uh, the cause of hyperthyroidism. There's also subacute uh, well, sub thyroiditis, and with this, this usually is viral induced. There's different types of viruses that can cause that again, including the most recent virus, but then cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr. So there's a number of different viruses that can cause hyperthyroidism. And with subacute thyroiditis, usually it's transient. So usually the person will have the hyperthyroidism for let's say two to four months, sometimes even shorter than that, sometimes even maybe like three or four weeks. Uh, but it's transient. Eventually, most of these people, or a lot of these people will become hypothyroid and that's usually temporary. And then eventually they'll become euthyroid again, which, so they'll have a normal, normal thyroid norm, um, numbers. And 
the thing is some people could have subacute thyroiditis multiple times, meaning that, remember, I said most of the time it's virus induced and, you know, like certain cases like, you know, Epstein-Barr, we can't get rid of Epstein-Barr. If you have cytomegalovirus, you can't get rid of cytomegalovirus. So I look at it more of an immune system problem uh, than a virus problem. So you all still want to do things to improve immune system health. Uh, there's Hashi toxicosis, which, uh, so Hashimoto's, again, I mentioned earlier where some people with Hashimoto's might experience transient hyperthyroid symptoms. And uh, so again, uh, that's, you know, I, well, I can't say it's uncommon, but, but again, most of the Hashimoto's, I, I deal more with hyperthyroidism grays, but when I work with Hashimoto's, typically it's not Hashi toxicosis, but that gets a little bit tricky to manage just because it's transient. So most medical doctors won't want to put the person on antithyroid medication uh, where they would do that for these other, well, especially toxic multinodular goiter and Graves disease. And then I guess the final type I'll mention is subclinical hyperthyroidism. And this is when someone will have normal thyroid hormone levels, but they'll have a depressed TSH, depressed thyroid stimulating hormone. And, uh, and most, of the case, most of the time, because their thyroid hormone levels are normal, they won't have the hyperthyroid symptoms. And so, uh, so yeah, those are the different types of non-autoimmune hyperthyroidism. I, well, and I feel like I hear a lot about the subclinical hypothyroidism. Um, so can you speak into like how someone would maybe get diagnosed or better understand what they have? going on with the thyroid? Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, there, so there's subclinical hyperthyroidism and then there's subclinical hypothyroidism. So, so what Hashimoto's most cases are subclinical for quite a while, because when you have, it, it takes, takes years for thyroid antibodies to, well, let's put it this way. The, the immune system component of both Hashimoto's graves are the first components to, to form. And then eventually they have the effect on the thyroid gland, but like for the, for getting back to Hashimoto's, someone could have the antibodies, whether it's the TPO antibodies or anti-thyroid globulin antibodies, and they could have those for years, yet their thyroid might look normal. So typically with, when you go to a doctor's office, they'll look at the TSH and the thyroid hormone levels and, and everything, if everything looks fine, they usually won't look at the antibodies, which is kind of backwards. You probably should be looking at the antibodies first, but yeah. So with Graves or even not, not even non-autoimmune, let's say subclinical hyperthyroidism, that's, that's not autoimmune, but I guess with Graves, since we're kind of comparing it, I just mentioned Hashimoto's with Graves, it's a little bit different, um, you know, as far as when, so, it, it, also takes time for someone to experience symptoms, but usually they're more noticeable. Like with Hashimoto's, if someone's experiencing fatigue or brain fog, they might not attribute it to the thyroid and the doctor as well. And especially, especially the range that there's, I don't want to get into like lab ranges and optimal ranges, but that's also a factor. But with, um, yeah, with, with Graves, if it's subclinical, it could also be a while before it's detected um, because again, if it's subclinical, the person's not experiencing symptoms and, uh, you know, so it's the TSH might dep be depressed. And again, I gave an example of subclinical hyperthyroidism being non-autoimmune, but there's also subclinical Graves disease. So either way, the person isn't experiencing any symptoms. And so 
they might not find out until the doctor, until someone decides to do a thyroid panel, uh, specifically the TSH in this case, and then they'll see the depressed TSH. And then at that point, they might test for the antibodies. Some doctors won't. Um, but if they test for the antibodies, a lot of times the antibodies will be negative because it's not always autoimmune, but if it's autoimmune, then, you know, that's kind of like silent Graves disease. We have like depressed TSH, um, thyroid hormone levels look good. And, um, but they do have that autoimmune component. So in that case, I mean, either way, whether it's subclinical Graves or subclinical Hashimoto's, you know, again, these are both immune system condition. So either way, you still want to focus on the immune system. Uh, many doctors would be like, oh, it's subclinical. Don't worry about it. You know, if you're, you know, start experiencing symptoms or if the TSH in the case of Hashimoto's, if it's above the lab range, you know, uh, which a lot of cases is like 4.5 or five. And, you know, so, so yeah, it's like I said, it's a little bit backwards when it comes to that, but but in both of those cases, there you still want to do things to improve the immune the health of the immune system. Yeah. So what kind of things would you recommend for the immune system? Yeah, so that comes down to finding and removing triggers. So we spoke about the well, I spoke about triad of autoimmunity earlier, which is the gen the genetics we can't do anything about. But then I mentioned there's the different triggers and then there's the increase in intestinal permeability, which is the leaky gut. So what I do in my practice, I find and look like try to detect the triggers and then of course do things to remove the triggers. So for example, with the food, of course, that we just spoke about diet, having the person clean up their diet, maybe go on an elimination diet. Some, some practitioners do food sensitivity testing. And then, you know, stress, we spoke about handling, doing things to manage stress. I do like to test adrenals, whether it's through, through saliva, or there's also something called um, dried urine testing. Dutch testing is one of the labs that do that, that perform that. And then, you know, sometimes infections, if it might do a comprehensive stool panel, maybe find some parasites or H. pylori. And uh, so again, we would want to treat that and, you know, uh, you know, chemicals are a little bit more challenging. There's so many toxins out there and, you know, so you could do some testing for heavy metals and other things, but we just, in this day and age, we got to assume that most people have a higher toxic load, obviously some people higher than others. And, uh, you know, and then cor correcting other imbalances, nutrient deficiencies um, are important, but, uh, and then the gut. So I mentioned that third component of the triad of autoimmunity, that leaky gut. So doing things to heal the gut. And the most important thing with that, in my opinion, is removing the factor that's causing a leaky gut. A lot of people will drink bone broth or take L-glutamine, which can be very helpful. But if someone has a gut infection and they don't address the gut infection, or if someone's eating gluten, which can cause a leaky gut and they keep on eating gluten, it's really going to be difficult to, to heal the gut. So when it comes to getting addressing that autoimmune component, really comes down to finding, removing triggers healing the gut. And one more thing I'll say is that most immune system cells are located in a gut. So you do need a healthy gut to have a healthy immune system. Yeah. So when it comes to treatment for hyperthyroidism, hypothyroidism, what are the differences between like natural treatments, conventional treatments? Um, which one do you feel like is better? I mean, I'm assuming more natural is the way that you go, but you know, can you speak into that a little bit for us? Yeah. So when, when I dealt with, with Graves disease, 
you know, I, I did go to an endocrinologist and she recommended methimazole, which is a type of antithyroid medication. And I would have considered it, but I wanted to take more of a natural approach. And so I took an herb called bugaweed, which has antithyroid properties. I also took, a, took something called motherwort, which acts on the cardiovascular system. And they both work really well with me. And so when I was started working with other patients with hyperthyroidism, Graves disease, of course, I was gung-ho on the, the herbs. But to be fair, they don't work on everybody. I would say maybe like 70% of the time. So there are people that do need to take antithyroid medication, such as the methimazole, or in some cases, PTU, if someone's pregnant and they need to take antithyroid medication, you know, usually they give what's called PTU the first trimester, and then, you know, put them on the methimazole the last two trimesters. But then there's, I think I briefly mentioned earlier, radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. So radioactive iodine is pretty much ablating the thyroid gland. And then of course, surgery, they're removing the thyroid gland. And I can't say there's not a time and place for conventional treatments. I mean, if someone has like thyroid cancer, you know, then yeah, they, they very well might need to get thyroid surgery. Uh, and, you know, maybe even in some cases where, you know, if, if graves, whatever reason, if they can't uncontrol, if they can't control it, but there, there are risks. Like uh, one thing I didn't mention is thyroid eye disease, which is associated with a lot of people with Graves disease and radioactive iodine. If someone has thyroid eye disease, usually they won't give it because it could make it worse. But there are some people with mild thyroid eye disease who might not know it, but then they get the radioactive iodine and then it, then it flares up and, you know, which isn't a good thing. And then, you know, there's always risk with surgery. Uh, you know, everything's risk versus benefits. So, you don't want unmanaged hyperthyroidism, uncontrolled hyperthyroidism, because elevated thyroid hormone levels, you know, could affect bone density in a negative way. It could, of course, affect the cardiovascular system in a negative way, potential for thyroid storm, especially if you're not managing, you know, the symptoms. So what I tell my patients is if they want, if, the, if they're coming to see me and they want to take something natural for symptom management, like, like bugleweed, you know, that's fine. But you know, if they're already taking antithyroid medication, just keep in mind that it might not work as well. You know, there's side effects a lot of times with the antithyroid medication, but again, it's risk versus benefits. And if it's, I know if it were me and if I couldn't take the bugleweed, I definitely would rather take the antithyroid medication while addressing a cause of a problem and, and then try to avoid, do everything I can to avoid radioactive iodine and thyroid surgery. So, and, and yeah. So uh, one thing I'll say is what I just um, mentioned is even if you're taking the medication, you still, it's not like you're giving in, you still want to address the cause of the problem while you're taking the medication. Yeah. And I have found that sometimes it's necessary, like you said, to, um, take a medication for a period of time while you're working through maybe finding some answers, like you mentioned, doing some testing, um, like the Dutch hormone testing and different things. So you can kind of figure out, okay, this is where I need to go. And this is what I need to ultimately work on. Um, because with thyroid testing, right, it's blood work and we're just finding the levels. We're not necessarily investigating those root causes. Um, so Dr. Eric in closing, what, how can people get a hold of you? Is there any last thoughts that you have? Yeah. So as far as last thoughts, again, if you have, you know, Graves disease or toxic multinodular goiter or a different type of hyperthyroidism, there's hope. There's definitely hope. M many medical doctors will just say you, you need to get the radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. And like I said, there might be a time and place, but 
but many people can reverse their condition, can get into remission. So definitely, definitely you know, th there's hope. And yeah, I have a number of resources that you could check out for those with hyperthyroidism who might be interested. There's my book, Natural Treatment Solutions for Hyperthyroidism and Graves' Disease. I also have a podcast called Save My Thyroid. And you can find that by visiting savemythyroid.com and just clicking on podcast. And then there's also a checklist. Um, if you visit thyroidchecklist.com, there's a checklist that goes over the different triggers for actually both Graves and Hashimoto. So this checklist could benefit people with both of those, the, these conditions and talks about the different triggers and you know how to uh, find and eliminate environmental toxins, just really dives into the triggers. That's the main purpose behind that. So, so yeah, those are, I would say are the three main resources. Perfect. Um, I have all of those links, so we will be able to put them in the show notes. Is your book on Amazon? Yes, it's okay. on Amazon and other platforms as well. Perfect. Cause I know all of my moms love Amazon. <laughs> um, I love Amazon. It makes my life so much easier having four kids. Um, all right, Dr. Eric, thank you so much. Um, and is there any one last like tip or nugget that you would want to share with the listeners? Yeah, like, uh, I, I, well, like I said, definitely don't, give up hope and, you know, keep, keep in mind, endocrinologists are going to, you know, they're trained, you know, they, they receive their training differently than functional medicine practitioners. So it's not uncommon to go to multiple endocrinologists and for them to say, you need to get radioactive iodine thyroid surgery. But what I would say is, you know, whether you have hyperthyroidism or, you know, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto's, you know, I would say definitely start with diet and lifestyle that those are things you could do on your own. You very well might need to work with a healthcare practitioner, you know, uh, whether it's um, myself or, you know, working with Shannon or someone else. But, uh, but again, you, a lot of people do need the, the help just because it could get complex finding the different triggers and underlying imbalances. So don't be afraid to reach out for help or should I say not even don't be afraid, but some people just are like, oh, I'm going to treat myself. You know, I could do all this. I'll just read a few books and you could definitely get a lot of information from books and podcasts, um, but it, it does really make a difference when working with a practitioner. But definitely start with, you know, start with diet, start with stress management, you know, eating whole healthy foods, doing things to manage stress that that alone could make a big impact in your health. I agree. Food and nutrition is a big place to get started and can benefit. It's what it's a simple thing. I will just put it that way. I know it seems hard to get started, but it's definitely simple. So thank you, Dr. Eric, for being on and we'll see you guys in the next. Yeah. Thanks, Shannon. Wait before you go. Please subscribe. If you found value in today's episode, Leave us a review and share on Instagram and please tag us. We love your reviews.